Hello and welcome to the latest episode of uh, Syndrome, which is a new podcast that I am recording. My name is Ben Wheeler, uh, in which I talk to my friends and other people based in Fiji uh, about their favorite movies, their memories and ideas about films. Um, and we just basically get to know them a little bit better uh, and in the process offer some recommendations for some of our favorite films. Today I am joined by my very good friend Malcolm Fialo. Hello Malcolm. Hello Ben. Uh, Malcolm and I uh, are, have been watching movies together for about two years now since we first met here in right. Fiji at a film screening night. Yes. Do you remember the movie? On the spot straight away. Uh, it was uh, Joe. My name is Joe, name the is Ken Joe. Loach film. Ken so Loach. we started off with some, with some serious gritty mm. British realistic drama um today i've asked you here to talk about some of your favorite movies and to talk about some of the ideas that we both love to discuss anyway around film and cinema and culture and memory and identity mm -hmm. um all the big stuff uh so i think we're going to start off with uh the very a very basic a simple question um which is why do you why do you like movies when you go when you watch a film what what do you what do you want to achieve what do you want to happen? Okay, so I've been pondering this question, Ben, and an eminent person once said, small people talk about people, mediocre people talk about things, and great people talk about ideas. And that's largely been a driving force in my life. And I think cinema has allowed me the opportunity to tap into a community of like-minded souls, who love the medium, who love the artistic expression of it, and it's about ideas. Um, I, I feel certainly over the years, cinema has really deepened my um, intellectual sophistication around a whole range of, of issues, um, and has made me a far more empathic and compassionate person, because it allows you the opportunity to walk in somebody else's shoes. So for example, if it's a movie around the hashtag MeToo movement, um, as a man, you, you, you can get the lack of privilege at being constantly objectified in a sexual manner. But um, cinema allows you to drench yourself in that experience. So while obviously you're not in the experience, it gives you that perspective. And that's very powerful for me. Um, and I think, finally, it's the, the sheer wonderment um, that was so beautifully expressed in that film, uh, Cinema Paradiso. The little boy in a cinema in a rural town in northern Italy, and the cinema comes to town, and he looks wide-eyed at it at the screen. And I love that wonderment, that sense of magic. So, yeah, a combination of intellectual head-based reasons as to why I love cinema, but ultimately the heart, the magic of being in that moment. Right. 
Yeah, I used to. Uh, so when I was teaching, I used to uh, describe films to my students quite early on as like empathy bombs. Mm -hmm. They have this kind of very explosive property where they can like shatter your subjectivity and and kind of reform it, put it back together again in terms of some uh, someone else's subjectivity and identity that you might not have any understanding with. And as you say, that can work across gender lines, but mm -hmm. it can work across uh, lines of identities involving class and sexuality and. Mm -hmm you know regional and national identities which is again again one of the reasons why i love it so much um so I, i'm also interested just uh, in terms of getting the basics together for this because we're gonna start looking at how early memories of film and especially i like memories about going to the cinema which i think is maybe not so much of a thing these days for, for, for younger generations, but for older older people like us, the cinema was at like a, mm. quite a reverential place in many ways. And I, and I know that you've had some really interesting uh, memories from uh, of early visits to the cinema. And I wonder if you'd tell us about a few of those. Sure. So, so it, it's a very interesting romantic period. So Bombay in the 70s uh, when I was growing up, and uh, Bombay, I'm sure the Deliards would disagree vehemently with it, with me. <laughs> but Bombay was kind of like the Melbourne, it was the New York, and Delhi was seen as rather a hick town. Um, and so Bombay had English cinema or Western cinema. So it was downtown about 40 minutes from where we lived. Um, and it was always a very interesting, mysterious place to go to. So I'd often go with my parents, my aunt actually, uh, downtown to a British bakery on a Saturday afternoon and we ha we'd have tea and scones at uh, the Dorchester and it was a marvellous experience but I never went to the cinema and my eldest sister um, one day she was dating a, who eventually a man who became her husband um, and it wasn't appropriate for her to go alone to the cinema with him so I went along as Gooseberry <laughs> So I remember she took me with her husband, uh, husband-to-be, and we went on this, um, it, the Four Limited. It was, it snaked down the spine of, of uh, Bombay. It's very iconic. The route's still running, the right. Four. And we went on the Four, and it had a Four Passenger and a Four Express. So because I wanted a fast bus, she took me on the Express. And you paid five paise more for the Express. And we went to, um, it was called Regal Cinema uh, downtown and this beautiful Art Deco building and we watched uh, Born Free. And it was an absolutely magical experience. Um, Elsa and the story and that absolutely transported me. And currently I was also watching uh, Bollywood cinema. We had a local, uh, you know, rat flea-infested cinema <laughs> that we'd go to. And I literally, I must have been eight or nine. I remember watching a, a Bollywood pot boiler and um, feeling a little tug at my toe. I thought, oh, whatever. I flicked it and it happened again. And I looked down and there was this huge rat oh my having a nibble. <laughs> and I, I gave the queeniest shriek <laughs> Ever. Yes, I, I, yeah, let's just say I was a gay boy on training wheels then. <laughs> it was a dead giveaway. All the signs were there. All the signs were there. So it was, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. And then moving forward a bit in high school, the formative experience was, uh, it was very subversive. Uh, we'd wag school and throw our bags over the, 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 the wall 
and take the commuter train to downtown Mumbai and watch. We watch Blue Lagoon. Uh, I remember Towering Inferno, um, Grey Saturday Night Fever. So lots of uh, very kind of edgy cinema at the time. And particularly, I'm, I'm quite amazed now how Blue Lagoon screened in Bombay in the 70s. Right, unexpurgated, unedited? Completely unexpurgated. So Christopher Atkins and Brooke Shields in all their beautiful glory. So yeah, so it was very, very interesting. So that was my first uh, intro to um, cinema and that's where, um, where, you know, I was transported Mm. and I developed a love for cinema in my formative years in Bombay. And it was Bombay then. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating, man. I, I love the idea of uh, of being transported on a journey, of being taken away somewhere, as I've already said. But I love the idea, and, and I think it's very key to your love of film, knowing you fairly well. Um, that that these some of these early films were quite subversive. That's something that I think really has coloured and, and stayed with you in your your love of certain types of cinema. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, I think now we were going to talk about favorite soundtracks. Now, movies movies are audio-visual constructs. Um, often we kind of take them to be more visual than audio, but, but I think music is very, very important to our enjoyment mm-hmm. of film. Already this morning, we have discussed... Yeah, some favorite uh, songs from from Bollywood cinema. Um, but but maybe before we get on to your or, uh, specific choices of films that you want to discuss today, you could take us through some of your favorite um, uh, soundtracks or, or, or movies, kind of musical movies. Right. So so then I picked a couple couple. Of, I have to say the outstanding, and I've gone back and forth over the last few days as to what I'd pick, um, and the outstanding choice for me is Mari Campbell's soundtrack in Sex and the City, the movie. And it's a very, very beautiful um, Irish rendition of Auld Lang Syne. And so Carrie, Sarah Jessica Parker, has just split up with Mr. Big. She's all alone on New Year's Eve. Miranda on the Upper West um, is all alone because she split up from Steve after he cheated on her. And they're both talking. It's half past ten and they're both going to be alone on New Year's Eve. And Carrie says, you know what? I'm going to come over now with a bottle of champagne. So she puts on her overcoat. She's in her pajamas and she runs across from the, uh, you know, you know, the geography of New York Mm -hmm. from East 72nd to to West 54th. And that's a fair hike across Central Park. Um, she runs across to be with Miranda and Auld Lang Syne plays out. And for me, that was a very beautiful moment because um, all through my relationships and, mar- and marriage, <laughs> I shouldn't say marriages, marriage, <laughs> um, I've always prioritized my friends. My friends have always been, um, been a priority for me and community. So that was really stood for who, who, I, um, who, I, who I am. Uh, the other the other ones I liked um, were The English Patients, so Gabriel Yared, Wang Wang Blues, that jazz piece, Where or When, was really lovely, and the Hungarian folk song, which typified uh, Kantar Mashi Wraith um, in many of the scenes. Um, I thought that was just a very, very beautiful score. Philip Glass and Notes on a Scandal, one of my favorite films. Uh, it was um, mood setting, it was somber and foretelling 
the psychological violence to come. So it's a perfect accompaniment to Judy Dench's um, underbelly. And Hitchcock's The Birds. Right. So while it didn't have a musical score per se, as you did say in Vertigo and Psycho and the other films, um, it was the birds. It was the the cawing, um, the the shrieking, um, the um, the gliding over Bodega Bay, and that atmospheric scene outside the school, the Bodega Bay Primary School, with these birds on the crow on the bars, um, just ruffling their feathers ominously, uh, looking sideways at Tippy Hedren and Susan Plachette. Uh, in the school mm. and that was so powerful it was just the ruffling of the feathers and no musical score could have conveyed the sense of impending uh, doom that was to occur when the children came out of the classroom and had to run down the street yeah excellent i mean um i'm i'm with you uh all the way with the birds there we we've talked about this quite recently uh the idea and this feeds back into what i was just saying about how important uh music and sound can be to you, your uh, emotional grounding sometimes guidance sometimes manipulation within a movie um the birds I often see as being one of Hitchcock's most disturbing films because there's no musical score. There's no um, non-diegetic sound or music to guide. Well, no non-diegetic music to guide you. There's only the sound of the birds, as you say, um, and that leaves you feeling uh, sort of unhinged and detached a little bit you don't your emotions don't really know where to go so i so i really really love that you've you've chosen that particular birds one and of course philip glass is is an is an excellent uh film scorer some of some of uh, some of his film scores are excellent and they get used again and again in, in, in different films don't they excellent so i think now we're going to move on to your specific film choices um i have been uh, wondering because they are a fascinating peculiar blend of movies which order to do them in do you have any preference which i want you to speak about first um, let's go intellectual first and finish off with the heart. Right. So I gave you some broad guidelines, which were three categories, uh, intellectual, physical and emotional, which, uh, which I'm glad you, you kind of went along with that little um, idea. Let's start with your intellectual choice. What was that? OK, um, so my intellectual choice was and, I, and this was a marvellous question. And I have had so much joy trying to sift through. I started off with a list of 16 and with great difficulty, I've whittled it down to six. So, um, so the my choice and runner-up for intellectual was um, Matchpoint. Um, it's a Woody Allen film, and I really loved it because he very cleverly explored that conundrum: um, Does our life happen? Is it pure chance, coincidence, happenstance, or is it? clever strategic planning um, and I've had this debate over the years with a couple of friends and I've been a strong advocate uh, for the latter school so I have very meticulously quite unbeknownst to me but it just so happened I'm very fortunate thank you universe that the way I envisaged my life in my early 20s I knew um, that so Seneca uh, the Greek philosopher said um, if you're privileged, try and disengage from the state. So generate your own income, 
so you can immerse in the world of ideas, um, in the world of the people you want to mix with, your community, like-minded souls. So I always had that vision that I wanted to be free in my late 40s and early 50s. And um, so I very strategically planned my finances, life, etc. Um, I really like being in relationship and or married. Um, I just, I'm a very neurotic single. So I always knew that I was going to be partnered and or married at that, this stage of life, etc. So most of the the goals that I set in my early mid-twenties, while not explicitly, have been achieved. So Woody Allen's strategic planning, I'm a strong advocate for that. I love that film. Um, I, so uh, before you go on, I think you're just about to go on to discuss your runners-up, or are you going to continue with Matchpoint? Uh, just uh, say another thing about Go Matchpoint. for it, go for it, but then I have some, some counterpoints. Uh, okay. Some so, return volleys for you, if uh, you will. Okay, absolutely. Uh, I uh, So he, look, he, he's... he's you know, explored conundrums right from the Annie Hall, uh, the early days um, with uh, Diane Keaton in New York, Manhattan, and then Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which I also liked. But I thought he did it best in Matchpoint. Um, and he hasn't done noir, so I thought that was a. They've always been kind of light, Manhattan esque, or if he's gone over to the continent, like Midnight in Paris or the film in Rome. It's been, you know, largely um, they, the Northeast liberals um, dealing with conundrums like, oh my God, I'm in love with two people, what do I do? <laughs> so it's, it's been first world, middle, upper middle class uh, problems, whereas I thought Matchpoint, he took a really dark, noir, um, psychological, complex bend. So that's my favorite film intellectually. It really made me think and... I've talked about it with lots of friends. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very interesting one. So I'm a big Woody Allen fan as well. Um, and my partner, Mila, one of her favorite Woody Allens is Match Point. So she, uh, we watched it together. And I did not switch onto it right away. I think since talking to you about it, I've I've decided I, did, I want to watch it again. But I found, uh, I found, well... I found I didn't find any of the characters particularly likable, especially the main character. And I, and I know I, this is kind of the point uh, of the film, uh, I think, in many ways. Um, and it's very I, I did find it interesting in its kind of ethical concerns and ethical dilemmas and the early kind of indexing with the main character reading uh, Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, the idea of transcending ethical concerns and transcending the constrictions put on us by society in order to live a, a more free life, a life freed of certain constraints. And that certainly taps into something that you've said so far about craving freedom. Uh, so I wonder what you what you'd say to those concerns and caveats of mine in order to kind of make me enjoy the film a little bit more right a marvelous question so a very good friend of mine in perth um we had a really interesting debate uh around this film and he absolutely detested uh the jonathan reese myers character and i felt great compassion so i guess what one of the periods that I've loved is the, you know, where you you did your duty in marriage, but then occasionally you had dalliances and assignations on the sides. You know, the mistress in Rome, what the French call 
are saying to set from five to seven syndrome, you know, where you go back to your wife and you're with your lover drinking peach wine against <laughs> against her, her damask uh, pillowcases <laughs> between five and seven, enjoying her company. And, and India's got a tradition with the courtesans of Lucknow. Um, so for me, I could, again, you know, art is often self-referential. And for me, I could literally see myself as a Scarlet character going, you know what, he's going to buy me an amazing apartment in Belgravia. He's going to give me an allowance. He's not an unattractive man. Uh, I'm going to be shagging him every couple of weeks. That's fine. And then have an amazing life in inner London. Why do I want to be needy and clingy and tell his wife and demand that he come with me, etc., etc.? So Scarlet annoyed me. He was trying to do the right thing by Scarlet. He was from the wrong side of the tracks as well. Had, you know, questionable means, but that's cinema. Um, and that whole, you know, uh, the, the moral choice stuff that you're referring to. So for me, I could see his point of view. And I, one of my friends in Perth, Kelly, who you know, says... Um, Malcolm's very well regulated like Brie in Desperate Housewife. Housewives Malcolm does not do messy so, <laughs> so, so I would have self-regulated and had the married man enjoyed his company without doing messy mm. so, which is why I adore Camilla and absolutely oh I don't particularly have much time for <laughs> Diana, shall we say. Because <laughs> that Andrew Morton interview was ghastly. I think, you know, the Buddhists say when you become uh, intimate enemies, then you should simply give gratitude for the good times you've had and then go your separate ways. Mm. So I'm a strong believer in, in conscious uncoupling. Um, and I felt um, Diana should have been very graceful and elegant about it rather than drag Charles and the royal family and poor Camilla through the mud. So I'm a strong <laughs> Camilla fan. Go Camilla! So hence my, um, hence my, um, I could see the multiple perspectives and I, well obviously, you know, I didn't condone what he did in the end, but I could have empathy and compassion for Jonathan Rees-Mines. Right. Have I convinced you? You've definitely given me some food for thought there. Yeah. I I, I love the idea. I, I love talking about films with you because I love how how wide you cast your net in terms of empathy and sympathy for, for characters. But then I'm always somewhat baffled by the occasional character that really riles you. Let's call them the Diana from now on, shall we, uh, in the mix. Uh, so, so, uh, characters who I often find quite sympathetic and, and for some reason you're just not, you're not on their side, you're not on their team. Um, but we'll move on from that very briefly. One, one quick question. 
One quick further question about Match Point uh, is that I wonder if some of the love for the film might be because of the location. Now, Mila has lived in London, my partner, uh, who, who loves the film, uh, and she has very romantic ideas about, about London as a place. Um, whereas I grew up just outside of London, frequent visitor and have f- less than romantic ideas about the place, you know. Uh, I wondered if maybe London is a, is a place that you romanticize size about in some way and, and you enjoyed that his first film set in London I believe his first even maybe non-American film he went on to do a few around the continent Midnight in Paris as you mentioned which I really love a, a far more gentle film and maybe that's my nature coming out there but what do you, what did you make of the setting um, actually I'd have to say no Ben uh, it was more the concept of it uh, interestingly I'm yet to be wooed by London. So I've got a dear friend, Richard, also cinema buff, who introduced me to New York, and I absolutely love New York. I've got a very good friend who introduced me to Los Angeles and Vancouver. When I first visited visited London, I really didn't know very many people. Um, So, and I've been there a few times, and on very brief visits, but I really have to spend much more time in London to really get to know, you know, those very British pubs, the theatre scene, um, the Tate, uh, little quaint places, the East End, um, uh, Bethnal Green and the and the, the food around there, Brick Lane. So I really need to spend a concerted time in London. So I don't, unlike Mila, I don't actually think that um, it was a love of London. Uh, I've still, I'm very neutral about London so far it oh. was more the concepts that explored right more the more the subversive concepts Correct. that were explored and the yeah. and the marginalized peripheral mm. characters um certainly there seems to be uh within that film a focus uh on the outsiders right mm. on the people that don't really belong in that sort of high class british established elite um and I think that's that's quite interest. That's quite an interesting point. Let's move on now and, and, and talk about your your near miss for intellectual. Let's let's stick with um, with that that subject. Okay, so my, my near miss for intellectual was uh, a film I saw recently at your place, Happiness. Um, I thought what an incredible film, um, and for me the reason I loved it is that. It really nailed that concept of multiple perspectives. Um, I think we all, you know, in in social sciences and queer theory and postmodern theory, blah blah blah, we get this. We talk multiple perspectives, but it can be very very hard. So, for example, off the left, uh, we were often very challenged by right perspectives in the Trump era. You know, so many of us didn't quite walk the talk in that sense. Um, I thought happiness really conveyed that uh, extremely well. It, it pushed the boundaries. Um, so cult American film, American Beauty, uh, which is also one of my favorites, but I just felt happiness far less known went further, was much more subversive, much braver, much more intellectually and emotionally rigorous than American Beauty. Um, so I was, it absolutely blew me away. So obviously it 
it is subversive of the perfect Florida lifestyle and the perfect New York apartment and being married with two children and having this amazing life, etc. It subverts all of that and we get that piece. Um, but then it took one of the bastions, handsome, uh, clean-shaven, square masculine jaw uh, husband um, with his underbelly uh, poncho for younger boys, the pedophilia aspect. And not only did it just allude to it, it depicted it quite graphically. And then there's this incredible scene, one of the best scenes in cinema, uh, the bravest scenes in cinema, I think, uh, where the son asks him uh, and says, Dad, um, if it was me, uh, would you have done the same? And he says to his son, no, I would never have penetrated you or asked you to perform oral sex on me, but I would have jerked off watching you. And I thought that was so honest and so profound because he had sexually violated his son's best two best friends. Um, and I thought that was just an incredible moment in cinema. So while I, I had absolute revulsion for his behavior, and obviously pedophilia is gross stuff, I was that it's that whole empathy piece. I was fascinated, almost ghoulishly so, by his honesty. And I felt a sense of compassion. Clearly he was sick and you know he needed psychiatric intervention, etc, etc. And we know we know the body of clinical practice dealing with, um, with pedophiles. But it was just the pure honesty with which he had the conversation with his son that blew me away and again allowed me to go into that multiple perspectives dimension, suspending age, suspending judgment, and really listening, getting it emotionally and getting it intellectually. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, I think uh, Todd Solondz, who, who directs Happiness, is one of those directors who really pushes you into uncomfortable places. I mean, this is... Perhaps some of the most subversive cinema around, and and uh, we we talked a little at the time about whether we thought this film could or would get made today, uh, which I think is an, is another a further interesting discussion. It was made in the mid nineties, ninety five. Is that right? 95. Yeah. Um, and it's it's representation uh, of not only marginal characters but. Um, criminal characters and especially characters who would who are perceived by society in criminal terms um is particularly interesting i mean it's it's fascinating i'm just thinking now actually while i use that word criminal it's fascinating that we are we are very comfortable exploring things like gangster movies there's a criminality there right that's uh that that type of character is is an outsider is on the outskirts and the peripheries of society and is breaking the law however we look at them with much more sympathy and in fact even reverence at times godfather um, yeah absolutely um and yet uh there are certain other deviancies that that are absolutely uh reviled and and just not addressed in in cinema and i think one of the things that that todd Solondz does in that film is to create a small space for sympathy and empathy 
And that's fascinating, I think. So, so Ben, can I say, I absolutely love that point. And it's just popped into my head, talk about, uh, 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 you know, a very um, organic process we're going through today. Uh, one of my favorite films is a French film called Heading South with Charlotte Rampling. And it looks at female sex tourism in Haiti. So three um, Caucasian American, North American women, one Canadian, who go to Haiti in the 80s during the Duvalier Papadoc regime and have um, sex with young men. They're not boys, they're young men, uh, young black men. Um, and it's a really, really powerful film. Now, I was extremely compassionate and empathic towards those women uh, because I get how, as Charlotte Rampling, you know, with those stunning cheekbones and that, that style and cold elegance, she says to the younger women, well, what's the fate of single white women post-45 in North America? Nothing. All the good ones are taken. Um, all the other, other ones are basically, we, we, we wouldn't want to date them. And most of the men our age are chasing 20 and 30-something, young, pretty. They don't see maturity and age as beautiful. Um, so we are forced to come to do this, you know, for want of a better word. So I was very compassionate because it was a sociological fact. It is a pattern in Western and most societies where, you know, men can be the, Har the Harrison Fords and the Richard Gears etc etc and still pulling uh 25 and 35 year old uh stunning women whereas you get older women like the mirrors etc and your chances are significantly uh, diminished but yet i absolutely detest the phenomenon of older gay and straight australian men going to thailand and bali so exactly doing exactly the same thing um but gay and straight i should say um, but with younger Thai and Balinese uh, uh, men and women. So it was... So uh, an interesting contradiction there correct. that you're identifying yourself. Yeah, so I've had lots of debates with another film, um, film uh, enthusiast in Perth, Norman, who's always challenged me and you know, said, well, what are you... Is this a double standard, Malcolm? So, um, so, so yeah, so Heading South really allowed me to process that stuff intellectually and for me I I see it as um woohoo gender equity one for the women <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's 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 interesting um and I think I do like films and perhaps although okay so let me rephrase this uh it's often very difficult to address these contradictions in yourself mm. and people don't like to have them pointed out uh, um I often feel like I try and strive to understand the contradictions inherent in my own personality and worldview. Um, but uh, perhaps something like Match Point kind of pushed me into a, an uncomfortable space that, which I, with some ethical concerns that I didn't want to address. I'm not entirely sure. So now, now I need to definitely go back to Match Point with this new intellectual out, outlook um, and reassess. I, 
I think we're going to move on now, and uh, I would like to talk about your physical selection. So okay. films with a certain physicality to them. What was your uh, your your top spot? Okay, my top spot. This was a difficult one because I had uh, Promising Young Woman, uh, Skinner Lovin. I know you. We both loved it. We saw it together. What an amazing experience at Demoda City. Wrong turn. So I've gone with Skin I Live In. Uh, it's uh, my favorite Almodovar film. And I absolutely loved it because it was the, like I got, it was very psychologically complex. It was very dense psychologically. But I really, it was Almodovar at his finest. Um, it, the, it was the operating theater in that amazing mansion. Uh, it was the, the skin. It was absolutely a sats, a beautiful, um, almost angelic quality that you see in Botticelli paintings. There was no even human pinkness about it. Um, and it was manufactured from pig's hide, I believe. Um, it was the scalpel, it was the instruments, it was the his poor mother who was complicit in in the in the gender i won't give too much away in the gender reassignment process etc but it was a very physical film um amadava uses color beautifully he used red um very strongly in the film um there were like huge splashes of red against this clinical white um of the operating theater um, which i absolutely love so the Skin I Live In is a film that I experience. So I'm a very, I'm in my head a lot of the time. I find it very difficult to go into my heart or my body. So The Skin I Live In was a very powerful experience for me because I was literally in my body for most of the film. Um, just experiencing how um, the doctor, Antonio Banderas, um, is you know huge ethical issues with reassigning uh, a young man against his will but it was the physical theatre and the clinicality of it that really got me and moved me yeah um, I, I also love this this film we're, we're big uh, Almodovar fans both of us um, it's in my top three I would say um, edged out perhaps by uh, All About My Mother, um, possibly pain, pain and Glory now. Uh, but it, I do love it because um, it fully explores and goes into that real visceral territory that um, that some of his other films kind of hint at. Some of his earlier films are very brutal as well um, and visceral, I would say. But I love the way that this does it through a real blending of genres you know it's really got a kind of horror slasher um mad scientist sci-fi vibe to it I, I, it hits up so many different genres for me and that's something i really love when films hybridize their genres and draw from all sorts of 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 reference points so that's interesting for me at the heart of it of course as always with almodovar is is, is a, 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 a times tender at times mm. quite troubling melodramatic 
story, but it hits up all those other kind of generic hotspots, which I which I really enjoy. There's some interesting. I mean, already you've you've brought it up again. The idea of ethics and ethical concerns. This is beginning to to be a leet motif, shall we say, of your film choices? Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that um, that you enjoy ethically troubling films? Uh, uh, look, um, absolutely. I and I love that you have positioned it that way and picked out that pattern in my choices. So obviously, ethical, ethically troubling dilemmas and romantic relationship issues, as Kelly says, those are my two fortes. Um, Interestingly, with Matchpoint, I was very sympathetic to Jonathan Rhys-Myers. I was not to Dr. Legrand. Um, it was heinous. It was horrible. Um, I felt he deserved to obviously be imprisoned. Um, I didn't dislike him. I didn't like him. I didn't have a violent reaction against him. I didn't, as you and my friend Nigel in Perth hated the John, Jonathan Reese Myers character. Um, I didn't dislike him, but I did not feel compassion for him. I thought, okay, you. There's obviously an electra complex here with your daughter, significant grief issues with your wife, dude. You're an eminent plastic surgeon. Go and get therapy. You <laughs> you do not have to engage in this heinous act with this young man who's got his whole life, a promising young man who's got his whole life ahead of him. So I felt no compassion. I get the I got the grief piece. I got the daughter piece. I got all that. I felt no compassion for him at all, as I did for Jonathan Rhys Myers. I was like, oh my God, Jonathan Rhys Myers. You made it to an apart a penthouse on the Thames, and that stupid Scarlet <laughs> ruined it for you. <laughs> See, that's that's uh, that's interesting as well. I'd like maybe if we could just unpack that a little bit further. Is there something about the uh, the more premeditated nature of the skin I live in? Um, is there something about the the class situation? Of these two characters, so as a one, one, one's crimes seem more impetuous and and born out of sort of a crazy. Uh, well, now how am I going to put this? Uh, one character seem more impetuous and on the spur of the moment, yeah. uh, if I'm remembering match point correctly. Correct. Um, whereas uh, and and born of a sort of a desire to climb that class ladder, as you said, like yeah. he he was trying to make it. Uh, from the lower classes to the upper classes, right. he sought that kind of approval. Yep. Whereas uh, the crimes of Antonio Banderas in uh, The Skin I Live In are from someone who is uh, already has that privilege. We've used that word already. Uh, and they are far, far more premeditated and consistent, you know, <laughs> over a long, long period of time. Does that maybe have something to do with your different approaches to these two characters? Um, look, Ben, that's a really, really good question. And I am going to have to mull it over. <laughs> no uh, problem. That's an easy, but my immediate off-the-cuff response is because um, one of my favorite films is the courtesan film with the celebrated Indian actress Gorekha. Hmm. 
in Umrajan. And I also loved Raise the Red Lantern, which is about feudal China, a man with four concubines, with Gang Li and Zhang Yimou. And I loved both films because I thought I would love to be in one of those roles because I don't want the man or the husband with me 24-7, but I just want a lover visiting regularly in a very committed way over a very long period of time. So not a fickle, flaky chap, but where we just come together for love poetry, conversation, making love, etc. And then he goes away. But I know he's there for him and I'm there for him. So I think that's why I connected. I always wanted to be a concubine or umrajan from a young boy. So I think that's why I really liked the proposition that Jonathan Rhys Myers gave Scarlett mm. and I was very angry with her for rejecting it. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why I was very compassionate to him was because I got it. It was my dream to be a courtesan. Right. And, and she f***ing thwarted it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably cut the F-bomb out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> as, the, uh, as the espresso martinis mm. go down. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, so I keep starting all my comments with, yeah, I'm going to try and stop that. There's a fascinating movie, and I'm not sure if you've seen it because you were out of the country when I screened it for our wonderful friends, uh, Alex and Jean-Francois, at the French residence, a French film called Les Yeux Sans Visage. Have you seen this movie? No, I haven't. This is a wonderful old movie um, directed in the fifties, uh, I think, by Georges Franzou. Franzou, um, and it's about. It was a huge influence for our Modavar for the skin I live in. It's about a a, a doctor who is driving uh, through Paris and and uh, with his young daughter and has a car crash and she is hugely disfigured for the rest of the film he has an assistant who goes out and kidnaps young women and he tries to transplant their faces onto his deformed daughter's face les yeux sans visage it means eyes without a face um, and it's a fantastic movie hugely influential on Alan Wadovar and, and a, a wonderful double bill you know it, we'll, we'll probably do it at some point before mm. you before you leave Fijian shores um, but let's not dwell on that mm. uh, so um, your second uh, where are we now intellectual and there's, a, there's an interesting kind of intellectual and cerebral mm. kind of uh, quality to your your choices, I think, across the board. Mm. Um, but let's go with your near miss for intellectual. For physical. Are we on physical now? On physical. All right, yeah. let me rephrase that. And, and, and considering you've known me for a very brief period of time, you've nailed it. I'm most comfortable in the head intellectual realm. And I'm just recognizing, and Kelly always, Kelly and Norman always call me out on this and go, stop with the head, get into your heart. <laughs> uh, so, and, and I'm, intellectualizing the physical yeah so that's really interesting to me that's fascinating so then i can i can keep that little mix up in because it's quite a revealing like a freudian slip almost yeah. so we are we are we are not we are um in uh physical right now <laughs> and your second choice physical was okay so i'll try not to intellectualize <laughs> okay so you won't be able to help it no. let's, let's try <laughs> right. okay so my second choice was a film uh, we saw at demoda city uh, called wrong turn 
and wrong turn is a Ben is hurrahing here in front of me. I love so, this movie. So wrong turn is um, is is it's a, it's been apparently it's a series and this is number seven uh, slasher horror genre. Uh, this one is much bolder. I haven't seen the first six. Um, this one is much bolder, much braver, and essentially looks at the the wars in America, the different groups. So the elite Boston to Washington um, liberals, the, um, the um, you know, the, uh, the, the cafe latte set. Uh, it looks at the rural voters in Virginia and West uh, Virginia, etc. strong, uh, you know, Trump supporters. Guns are a big issue for them, etc., etc., and everything in between. So um, it, a group of young liberals from New York um, start the Appalachian Trail, take a wrong, a left turn to see an old fort on the trail, and then this gruesome um, drama unfolds. And it's incredibly visceral because um, the lighting uh, was very, very clever. It was very desaturated lighting. So in the woods um, with this filtered sunlight coming through, you could really con conveying a sense of foreboding. Um, very early on in the piece, the horror starts. Uh, I almost, Ben and I almost jumped out of our seats um, where this rolling log comes down a hillock and kills one of the, uh, one of the, the characters. Um, and then all the way through, you've got the, this, a group of people who are part of the the kingdom and they have um, foundation no, sorry the foundation and they have uh, moss moss is their clothing they're like cavemen and women and they have animal faces elk as as their their insignia and so they're colliding with the the young liberals from uh, from new york and the trees almost have eyes um, the there's a gruesome judgment arbitration ceremony in a cave. Um, there are the people who have been imprisoned where their eyes have been gouged out, their organs they've been disemboweled. Um, they're in uh, in the dungeons, like in the dungeons of of you know something out of Les Mis. It's really quite awful. So it's a very visually powerful breathtaking um film at that body level and it's it there's a a, a fantastic uh, finale which i won't give away that's also incredibly visceral so while i get the intellectual subtext it was very clever it took um slasher horror next level to um explore issues of diversity and inclusion who is the other why are we fearful of the other the current polarization, uh, the the you know socio-political polarization tensions in contemporary America, particularly post twenty sixteen, um, it explored all of that very cleverly. I get that piece, but um, that was not the main bit of it. It was mainly the physicality of it. So when we came out of Demoda Cinema, um, Ben, myself, and a few other people, we were we were, you know, debriefing and deconstructing it for ages. 
And while we did talk about the sociopolitical contemporary themes it explored, um, the main focus was on, wow, um, that nail-biting scene when. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely, man. I, I really love this film and I, and I can't wait to watch it again. I enjoyed that cinema experience so much because it was a physical experience. And this is why I love the horror genre. I love having my anxiety glands tickled under, under controlled circumstances. You know, I don't like it when they get away from me unexpectedly but if it's in a kind of horror movie it's that whole roller coaster type type deal right controlled exhilaration and fear um so i had a very physical response to it too as you said from that moment where the the log rolls down the hill and that began a pattern of interesting representations or non-representations of violence i thought in that scene we don't see the moment of uh, where the character gets killed. We see the aftermath. Just like in the court scene of the cave that you described also, we see the, the sentencing and we see the swing, but we don't see the moment of impact, shall we call it, uh, but we see the aftermath again. And I thought there was something fascinating about the way they were not representing but not representing violence, suggesting it and suggesting that it was happening off screen somewhere. And that kind of led me into some of the intellectualized readings that, that I made of it in our discussions afterwards. And I thought it was fascinating for those reasons. Um, I like the way you just described the, the, the groups in very uh, almost diplomatic terms. I would say they are quite extreme stereotypes of, of of broadly left and right wing you know the sort of the young middle class hipster community who are who are not massively sympathetic we have to say in this film um the um the sort of the, the redneck shall we call them indulging that stereotype that they're going for um broadly speaking i would say more right wing affiliated voters at least from my external understanding of the stereotypes of course that we're dealing with here in american politics but i thought the foundation represented the worst of both those worlds the extremities that that left and right-wing politics can go to and do go to in in the contemporary political climate they had a very sort of uh there was a there was a quite a communist kind of vibe running through the foundation mm -hmm. right each they even say they they run the kind of each uh, according to their abilities, each according to their needs type philosophy. But I thought there was a, a sort of uh, a, a quite a right wing streak that ran through that community as well. I was fascinated by what you mentioned about the the outsiders that were struck. Their eyes and tongues are struck out, right? And they're put into those caves, mm -hmm. like you said. And for the first time, I've just had a new thought about that. How it could be a representation of, like, cancel culture. Like, you're not allowed to see these things. You're not allowed to comment on these things anymore. The eyes and the tongue. But, yeah. I mean, for me, this, again, works... That's a film that works across all these categories. I had an emotional response. Mm -hmm. I had a physical response. And I was left with all these intellectual ideas about the movie afterwards. So I haven't really framed a question for you there. You've just picked like one of my favorite movies recently. So I've just got on a big blur. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, anything else you kind of want to say about, about that movie before we move on? No, no, look, I, I, I mean, I like Ari Aster's Midsummer, mm -hmm. and, but for me- Hereditary as well, which we And Hereditary, correct. But 
they were all superb, but this had the most visceral, uh, evoked the most visceral response from mm. me of the three. Yeah. 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 I'm with you on that one. Man. Okay. So deep breath. The, the physical is done. And we are moving now into emotional Emotion. territory. So this is my most difficult area. <laughs> so, so I can... Lift. Difficult because you are up here in your head Correct. and you are now pushing yourself into an uncomfortable space? Correct. Okay. Uh, and one, there are only two films in the last 30 years that have really made me um, ugly cry. Uh, so <laughs> ugly one, cry, I like that. Yeah, so one is uh, Brightback Mountain and the second one was Lion with uh, Dave Patel. Uh, now, I suspect, I need to watch Lion again. I suspect Lion might have been, um, might have been Napa Valley Merlot induced. <laughs> so I, so Qantas, there's this very, there's this marvelous uh, drama that happens on the LAX tarmac every night. This is pre-COVID. So you have five flying kangaroos lined up side by side. It's quite lovely. Uh, going to Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney from Los Angeles uh, between 9.30 and 11 p.m. So I was in the Qantas Lounge having my espresso martinis um, and had one too many, shall we say. <laughs> Got on QF93 to Melbourne, and um, as we were in over the Pacific, started watching Line, and it just made me ugly cry. So I don't know whether it was the espresso martinis and the, the Napa Merlot, or whether it was truly the content. We'll, we'll come back to that. Perhaps the altitude. <laughs> I often find that, uh, you know, on planes, the, the, the alcohol takes effect a little more. And, but I think I feel, even without alcohol, a little bit more emotional. That idea that you're... So we, start, we started off this discussion with you saying that one of the things you love about films is that they take you on a journey. Perhaps the idea of being physically moved somewhere from place to place on an airplane might compound your enjoyment of, of film watching. Who... Uh, and, and I think that's a great observation because if you look at the content of Line, it was this young adopted Indian boy in Tasmania who then through the marvels of modern technology uh, went on Google Earth and found his family home in remote Uttar Pradesh. Uh, so not even a big city, some random station in Uttar Pradesh on the Delhi-Calcutta main line and was able to locate the station and where his family lived when he was separated from his mother and his brother. So, so I, I think that's a really great insight as to why I possibly cried. Uh, because it was that sense of transport, mm. yeah, transportation. Okay, so, so the, the movie I picked was Brokeback Mountain. Um, so Brokeback Mountain is uh, Ang Lee's absolutely spectacular screenplay of a very, a very anorexic novella by Annie Prue. Um, so I found it very interesting. A, a woman wrote it. And B, it was so... I've read, I've read the novella, and it's very sparse. You've really got to use your imagination um, to experience it. Whereas I thought Ang Lee just did a magnificent job. I loved it because, obviously, identifying as a gay man. Um, and I like that notion of the Romeo and Juliet syndrome, the tragic, romantic um, stuff, which is, you know, if 
they got it together and settled in suburban Virginia. Nobody would have made a film about them. <laughs> but but it I like that notion of where where people in love almost get it together but just can't get it together be it time be it context be it um different levels of communication spiritual maturity depth etc like the jake gyllenhaal character was so much more mature developed um and heath was so arrested in his role as macho wyoming cowboy provider for my wife Michelle Williams and two daughters and he couldn't see himself outside of that role he was very gender rigid and of course because of the um, experience his father um, kind of exposed him to a hugely traumatic experience Correct. I thought that was a fascinating element in the development of that character I'm not sure you, you say the Annie Proulx uh, novella is very sparse Did they, was that in there as well do you it, think it, it is in there it's been a while then right. so I, I, I'd have to go back and revisit it but I don't think it's it's expanded as much mm. as as Ang Lee did in uh, in the film, and they often say we have to. It's about uh, karma visited from our parents and cycles of families. So how do we a, acknowledge uh, traumatic karma we inherit mm. from um, from families? Do we acknowledge the patterns we inherit from traumatic karma, and then do we work on breaking those patterns and cycles? So you then establish relationships where you're actually coming into your own having healed, having dealt with destructive, inherited uh, family karma patterns. So That's fascinating, um, and, and, uh, but it, not, not least because we haven't really expounded on, it, on, on many discussions of, of directors yet, but it, if I may interject for a second, Ang Lee's whole deal is those inherited traumas, isn't mm. it? Isn't it? Um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to look at uh, the broad genres within which he's worked, and I think as uh, as a comic book fan, I'm gonna I'm gonna put, stick my neck out now and say say once again that I think Hulk, his Hulk, was one of the best comic book adaptations ever, and it really absolutely solidified the tragedy of and the hubris of the father passing down curses. In this case, within the superhero <laughs> format, the reason that that Bruce Banner uh, is the Hulk is because of the experimentations that the father was doing of, on himself genetically. Uh, so it kind of messes with the mythology a bit, which people didn't like. But for me, it's an absolutely astounding art house in its, in its, um, in its sentiments, in what it's trying to explore. It really melds together his concerns and the concerns of the, of the comic book uh, mythology, I thought. But I'm jumping in there a little bit. I'm going to back off again. So, so yeah. So, so I loved. Um, I, as I said, I like the notion of people just not quite getting it together. Uh, it was beautifully portrayed, and it showed um, the whole the '60s pre Stonewall, um, etc. In a in an incredibly powerful way, in a stunning setting. You know, the in Wyoming. Uh, an absolutely beautiful setting. So I think for me, Brokeback Mountain um, really made me ugly cry. It got me emotionally. I went completely out of my head. So rather than in my head, 
thinking, oh, it was terrible, pre-stone wall, etc., etc. And and in a sense, my experience of living in Fiji has allowed me to reconnect with Brockback Mountain because I see so many um, gay slash queer men, Fijian men, both Ithoke and Indo-Fijian of Indo-Fijian extract, who are living the Ennis and Jake Gyllenhaal lives. They're still in the closet. They're so connected to community. They're connected to family. They're connected to quite rigid identities around that stuff and they are unable to break free. So in a sense, being in Fiji for the last three years has really transported me back emotionally. I'm hearing quite a few tragic stories from, you know, if they were in Perth or Melbourne or New York, they just come out as gay. Um, These tragic stories of Fijian men who are deeply closeted um, like Ennis was in Wyoming in the 60s. Yeah, there's, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I'll keep this this bit in, but there's there's been, have you heard about the, the murder in, in Tonga? Um, the Laties? The, oh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of violence being perpetuated to perceived marginalized or deviant or different or other to groups is, is something that's still something that, that that happens. Another thing, have you ever seen a film called The Laramie Project? Yes, Remember I that have. one? Yeah, is Matthew that Wyoming Shepherd. as well? It is Wyoming, right. yes. Matthew Shepard. just popped into Correct. my head. Yes. That was Fabulous. another, I mean, I did a big, oh, big cry on that one. Uh, amazing, yeah. Um, but I was reminded of it throughout Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. Um, some some other interesting points about Brokeback Mountain. Mm. Uh, just to continue with uh, with with my discussion of uh, of Ang Lee, who I do really love mm. and admire as a director for various reasons. He sort of I think he transgresses the kind of East West notion, mm. right? Oh, yeah. Ideologically and yep. philosophically, as well as bouncing and jumping around between genres, as I've already mentioned. But one of the key themes I think to his movies is could be summed up as being shattered innocence. What do you think about that comment in respect of Brokeback Mountain. Oh, look, I absolutely love that positioning of it, Shattered Innocence. I, I, one of my favorite, two of my favorite scenes in cinema are in Brokeback Mountain where, where they both do the blokey thing after their first encounter on Brokeback. And they're in that main street and they say goodbye to each other and Jake Gyllenhaal drives off and Heath goes into a little alleyway and actually viscerally throws up because he loves him so much and he knows he's going to miss him and not see him for a year Mm. and he throws up. Um, And I think that was incredibly beautiful and that's a shattered innocence piece and the piece where um, Jake's returning to the little town he sent him a postcard and he and Alma are doing the dishes in their in their home overlooking the street and he's like a teenage girl waiting for the boyfriend to pick her up for the prom um, oh yeah he's and, so fidgety and he's so fidgety <laughs> and I think that's that whole notion of shattered innocence here's my little middle class straight life it's never going to be the same again and then out like phoenix from the ashes arises a new awakening of another quite beautiful jewel mm. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I I hadn't seen that film. It had, it's kind of a, a bit of a crime, really, um, that I hadn't seen it for so long. But I watched it yesterday after you selected it for our discussion, and I did think there was something. There was such a sort of. Um, mythology that's grown up around it as like the gay cowboy film but I think I expected it to be a little more even though I should have known better uh, from Ang Lee a little more sort of uh, gratuitous almost in ways but there was something wonderfully innocent I thought about the initial um, coupling uh, that agree uh, that happens quite early in the film and about their relationship generally mm-hmm. I really had a different a completely different idea about what that movie would be and I thought and, it was and Ben I love that that you've said that because because Today, in the in the grinder culture and in popular gay culture, the obsession is on youth, and young, and beauty, and perfect bodies, etc., etc. And I love in the latter half, the final forty-five minutes of the film, they're both older men. Yeah, they've they've put on weight, they're grey, they've clearly got wrinkles, they've lived, they're fishing by the stream in Wyoming. And they both just love being with each other and having that cup of tea and drinking whiskey and talking. And I love that it shows them as young, nubile, beautiful men, as well as older men, because the relationship spans 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the fact that it didn't do the, the, the beauty body Nazi nonsense that happens in the gay community. Yeah. Yeah, which we will come on to talk about more, I Indeed. think. One last thing about this movie, and simply in terms of our discussion today, I'm, I am uh, putting together another little kind of uh, weaving together some of the things you've said. Do you think this film is emotionally very important to you because of the interruption that occurs between head and heart with these characters? There's one character that's almost... Jake Gyllenhaal is... Jack, right? Jack, Jack Twist. Jack Twist. Is leading with his heart. Oh, Absolutely. Totally. And he I think this is one of the roles that must have marked him as a real mature actor, right? Because he was uh, I remember him from Donnie Darko and thinking, oh my mm. god, this guy's great. But then there was a series of films, Jarhead, mm. uh Brokeback Mountain, which I'm only now watching, but that I think really elevated him. And Ennis of course Nightcrawler. <gasps> Very recently I was reminded just watching this movie that I needed to watch. Ah, okay. No worries, we'll take a break, shall we? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, so we've now discussed Brokeback Mountain. We're on to your final emotional film right. choice, the one that almost made it. Right. What was that? Okay, so um, so it's really interesting, beautiful film in that very restrained uh, English tradition uh, called Carrington. So it charts the love story between a celebrated uh, turn of the century as in 20th century, um, writer Lytton Strachey and a painter, Dora Carrington, uh, played superbly by Jonathan Price and Emma Thompson. Uh, they were contemporaries of uh, Vita Sackville-West and Virginia Woolf, etc., that whole Bohemian 1920s set. The Bloomsbury group. The right. Bloomsbury set, indeed. Um, it's a very, very beautiful film because it portrays that very nuanced concept of 
self-abasing agape love. So they obviously try a sexual relationship. It's a disaster because she's a straight woman and he is a gay man. Um, and that doesn't work, but she's still, he is still the love of her life and she is the love of his life. Despite them having encounters with a range of people who are eventually emotionally and intellectually unsatisfying for both of them. Um, it's, I love the aesthetic of it. Um, I love the romance of it. There's a very beautiful letter that he writes to her uh, when he's in Venice and they've been separated for nine months and it's absolutely exquisite talking about he misses their interaction, their lively conversation, her vibrant company. And it's that notion of agape, of love, without the physical or sexual component. It's not necessary. That's the definition of agape? Correct. For anyone that yeah. hasn't... Agape as in... Uh, so agape and eros. So eros is erotic, sensual, sexual love. Agape is love. So parental love is agape. Love that you have for a very close friend without a sexual component is agape. And it often can transcend erotic love because erotic love can is often temporary mm -hmm. so in the moment you have a, a, um, a, a an earthquake happening in your groins towards the person and then that like anything subsides agape is far more enduring it lasts and can trump and transcend uh, erotic love mm. so yeah finite and infinite love finite and infinite love correct so it it, it highlights that connection beautifully it has a very tragic ending which i won't give away but it really it tugged at my heart heartstrings and while it didn't make me ugly cry i re revisited last year it last year when i was in perth with uh, with uh, norman and nigel my movie movie crew in perth um and we all were moist eyed i won't say we cried we were moist eyed it was a very beautiful film so Yes, so definitely up there in my top two emotional films. It's fascinating that we should end there for this particular segment as well with a discussion of the distinctions between intellectual, physical, and emotional stimulation, which is what we're, which are the broad parameters and categories that I've asked you to select films from. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> pop the microphone with your drink. We'll cut that out. Um, yes. Uh, so for the final section now, um, mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, we've, we've discussed your favorite films and why they're your favorite films. We've discussed your earliest memories of cinema and why you go to film as a medium, what you want from it. Perhaps now we can talk about the things that you would like to see in films that you're not seeing at the moment. Okay. So... I plan to write that book one day and these are two key themes that I have pondered over for more than a decade now and had numerous conversations with my Perth urban tribe as they will all tell you and obviously they fall in the realm of relationship 
so the first the first broad theme is the notion of um, marriage. So we still work on the assumption till death do us part. But the reality is, I think it's a troubling assumption because we don't live till 40 now. We now live till well into our 80s. So is serial monogamy, where you have two or three long-term relationships over the course of your life, the more rewarding growth expander option? Or do we just stay together because that's the way it's done and we're terrified? So there are a couple of themes that I've observed uh, in talking to a lot of my friends, gay and straight. So long-term marriages, um, an alarming number of them are not having sex with each other, or infrequent or not at all. And Bettina Arndt, she's controversial in Australia, um, explored this in a book called What Men Really Want in the, in the mid-teens and copped a big uh, backlash from uh, the feminist lobby. And she said it was heartrending. She interviewed thousands of heterosexual men, and they said um, in their 40s and 50s, and they said they, they loved their wives and their female partners, but they had all but shut down sexually. So they were, in the, they were staying in these marriages, very devoted fathers, devoted husbands, but nothing was happening uh, twixt the sheets. And leading to significant frustrations and heartrending stories. So that's one piece, and I see this in the gay community as well. Lots of, um, more than a few of my gay male couple friends, long-term, um, have, have no sexual relations with each other, but discreetly uh, play outside the primary relationship on Grindr or at the bathhouses or elsewhere. Um, the other phenomenon which has been touched on a bit in cinema with uh, A Married Story, Mark Ruffalo, Lordens, and um, Krauss's Naomi Watts, that marvelous film, We Don't Live Here Anymore, uh, Neil LeBute's um, Friends and Neighbors, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, so it's been touched on occasionally, is the internecine warfare in marriage, uh, the psychological wounding, the slashing sarcasm, um, the button-pushing uh, that couples do in long-term relationships um, and um, Goddard, um, Goddard's Le Weekend um, explored it in the late 50s as part of the French New Wave. So both the piece around not having sex in marriage as well as internecine warfare, domestic warfare, are intriguing to me because I see people staying together in these very self-destructive, in my view, marriages and relationships, and I think why. And I believe cinema does not explore this sufficiently. So um, another aspect that I'm fascinated by is the the, the online hookup culture, so Grindr, Tinder, um, etc. Um, and there were two films recently that I absolutely love that explored this. So one was called Who Do You Think I Am? with Juliette Binoche mm -hmm. um, and Sequin in a Blue Room. So in 
the Juliette Binoche film, um, she assumes the identity, the fake identity of a younger 25-year-old woman to snare a 20-something guy that she becomes obsessed with. So it's a really interesting, remarkable portrayal of false identities and falling in love with an illusion on both sides. So go see it. Who do you think I am? Mm-hmm. With Juliette Binoche. Uh, the second film was a, a very cutting-edge indie Australian film called Sequin in a Blue Room. So it's a young gay man, sadly, sadly, not sadly, underage, um, who then uses Grinder to hook up with older men. And it portrays that critical tension between love and intimacy versus the heady rush of casual sex. Um, it's a very clever film because it doesn't go into value judgments and being moralistic. Neither is it flippant. It's, it's raw, it's visceral. You see male-to-male sex. You see them in the sauna, at the sex party. Uh, the lighting is really intense. The musical score is electrical and marvellous. Um, so I'm fascinated by this whole notion of how a generation of, you know, late Gen X, Gen Y, millennial gay men are the bulk of their experience is on Grindr, has been on Grindr or Gator for the last 10 to 14 years, um, leading to a high number of gay men in their 40s, 50s, 40s and 50s who are single. And then you look at their heterosexual counterparts, brothers, father, brothers, cousins, friends, etc. For the most part, are married. And then you pick the, um, the socio-psychological research, which says it's very good for men to be in relationships. It's very healthy. It adds uh, seven to eight years to our life expectancy for men to be in relationships. Not so great for women. I was going to say, it's a slightly deleterious for the <laughs> For the women, unfortunately. <laughs> women are actually better off single, but for men, it's really good for them to be uh, partnered in a secure relationship. So we're getting this, we're breeding this, um, an Australian researcher calls it a silent epidemic in the gay community, which is not talked about. This generation of gay men in their 40s and 50s and early 60s who are who have been long-term singles and are potentially going to be long-term singles um, through this phenomenon. And so what are the implications for mental health, uh, aged care, loneliness, um, existential loneliness, etc., etc.? So I'm fascinated by this phenomenon. It's all very well, the grinder, quick, anonymous, casual, heady sex phenomenon. But then what about those long periods in the desert with existential loneliness? And we don't focus on that. We focus on the heady aspects of the blue room, of the quick hookup. So those are the two key areas that I'm fascinated by. A third subsidiary area is uh, Marola's equal opportunity manager at a large university in Australia, University of Western Australia in Perth. 
And I saw a lot of psychological and emotional violence in the workplace. And one of my favorite films with Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett, Notes on a Scandal, really highlights this notion. Uh, it looks at um, a teaching a school in London, in an economically depressed area in London, and the psychological and emotional violence that occurs among staff in the staff room and the dark underbelly. And I saw that underbelly in my professional career. And sadly, it was, it was feminized. Uh, it was often female, female, psychological and emotional violence in the workplace. So um, it was, it's a phenomenon that I think we tend to, you know, look at, um, you know, The Wolf on Wall Street and those sorts of films, the out there corporate psychopaths. But they're the outliers. I think you do get socio community sociopaths in the workplace. They go, they fall beneath the radar and they cause, they wreak enormous destruction behind them. They destroy faculties, they destroy schools, they destroy villages, they destroy corporations. Um, and no one, and people then piece it together after they've left. And then they go, OMG, OMG, that person was a psychopath. So I think we don't really look at that nexus of Machiavellianism, delusions of grandeur, and psychopathy that occurs in the workplace. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a fascinating entanglement, I think, a narrative thread running through those ideas there, mm -hmm. whereby the, the psychological warfare in Notes on a Scandal in particular is grounded mm -hmm. in this loneliness, this later age loneliness, which kind of inflected uh, the second part of what you wanted to see more in films there, which is really, really interesting. Um, I think there's a... There's a not a contradiction, but there's a complication in what you're saying about um, uh, looking at relationships that become sexless versus um, looking at cultures and subcultures that define themselves via consistent sexual uh, interaction. Do you, do you see what I what I mean there? That I, I, obviously, relationships are complex. So this is this this is a complexity rather than a contradic contradiction, as I said. And and Ben, I totally get your point, and I'm well aware of my bias. Um, I think a relationship can be very beautiful without having sex. So a companionate, transactional relationship. I totally get that. Um, so I'm bringing Malcolm bias to it. For me, at this point in my life. I would not settle for a relationship without sex. Now, if you ask me this question in 10 years, I may well say, yep, Ben, totally get it. The companionship, uh, the shared love of travel, the shared love of cinema, books, a very rich life that we've created together with my husband slash male partner um, is incredible. And the sex part of our connection is now been superseded by this rich intellectual, emotional, and cultural life we've created. And where I'm sitting at today, in my mid-50s, um, I love sex, <laughs> and I'm not going to settle for a non-sexual primary relationship. 
Yeah. So in 10 years, maybe, and I absolutely acknowledge the possibility that that may be the reality for some people. Mm. And in that respect, do you think that Carrington is possibly a glimpse into, into a future, Malcolm? Uh, it, you know, where, where the physicality of, of relationships in the past has never, has not uh, transcended the emotional, cultural, spiritual, intellectual input that these two characters because i haven't seen this movie i have to go and watch it but these two characters seem to have enjoyed over the years you you've nailed it um carrington may well be malcolm at 75 <laughs> let's have this conversation in in two decades exactly yeah we'll do the sequel final thoughts um so i'm just going to say a, a few things we've, right, we've yeah. uh, over the course of this discussion which has been varied and in-depth and, mm. and fascinatingly compelling I think um, I've noticed a few things that I mean you yourself have already brought up connections and interconnections and themes and leitmotifs throughout your selections there's a, a fascination with love and romantic entanglements especially the problems that can come along mm. with them but I think more interesting to me is your love of watching films about outsiders societal mm. outsiders and I think films extreme films like happiness really mm. kind of drove that home for me that you like and enjoy sympathizing and empathizing with un the underbelly that's another word that you've mm. used a few times the marginalized characters or the shadow personalities, perhaps, shall we say. Do you think, would that be a fair comment? I, I entirely agree. And I think, again, it's, it sh it's shaped by my formative years. So I was very conscious of being running against the wind as a young gay boy at school in Bombay. Um, and I knew I was the outsider. So Camus is the outsider. Mm. Uh, and that was a very intense experience for me. And that has largely shaped my connection with cinema and my connection with the world. Um, so I've tried to resolve uh, the pain of my experiences at school, which led to a self-harm attempt in my late teens through... Um, being empathetic and rescuing, for want of a better word, and connecting with and taking the cudgels up for the outsider. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating, man. Thank you so much. I mean, that's, that's really tied it together nicely. I love how you've linked that thematic consistency in, in some of your choices and some of your favorite films with, with a real personal mm. moment from your life. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for the discussion. I think uh, we, we will wrap it up there. It's been fantastic. And I think we will definitely record part two in a few in a year let's say in a year's time let's do this again in Goa in Goa <laughs> absolutely I look forward to it thank you Ben it's been marvellous thank you very much Malcolm uh, thank you for listening I hope you've enjoyed um, our, our little or large long discussion um, and uh, I'll be back next week with uh, another discussion thank you oh my god it's <laughs> I can't I've it. never seen Carrington <laughs> okay okay call it up now oh my god my You did see Harrington in my place and you adored it. 
Jonathan Price and Emma Thompson. No, I didn't. I haven't seen it. Was are you sure? It wasn't? Yeah, you were with me. You absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah. You saw it with Roshni. I'm absolutely positive you I'm were with def- me. Definitely you go, haven't seen it. You went, Malcolm. This is amazing. 1920s, um, and she had three lovers: the German guy Gertler, and yeah, you, me, and Roshni. It was one of our early films. You absolutely loved it. <laughs> We're going to have to cut this out because I'm telling you, I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh my God, Ben, that's insane. Who, I, who, who was this person that you were having a film club with and watching Carrington? I would, I, I, I adore, we've never watched an Emma Thompson movie together or a Richard, or a Jonathan Ben, Price I was over the, are we going to have to cut this out? <laughs> I was over the moon that you loved it. You go, Malky, I can see why you loved it. You play at the we'll trailer. Watch, we'll watch the trailer after this. Yeah, and you go, yes, okay. Yes, yes, okay.